And so, rejected by Jesus. This week, we are going to look at a person who just randomly shows up to Jesus with a demand. Now, we all know anyway it doesn't work for us to go to God and tell him how it's going to be anyway. But this is an interesting uh, case. It's not a long story. In fact, it happens very quickly uh, as Jesus shuts this man down. But what we find in this is somebody who, in a sense, wants to co-opt the name and authority of Jesus for his personal purposes. And we're going to talk about this one because that is something that actually happens a lot in religious circles, in Christian circles, and sometimes even out of Christian circles, is they want to, you know, many times people who are dishonest uh, want to take the name of God, they want to have the authority and the power of God, but they don't want to actually have the faithfulness and obedience to God that's necessary. And so today we're going to look at the man without inheritance in Luke 12, 13 through 15. And it says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here again, Jesus is just teaching. This is, this is likely the same time that his mother and brothers came. I mean, he's just getting interrupted left and right by the Pharisees, his family. And now this guy's just shouting at him in the crowd. Uh, you know, Jesus is actually trying to teach here. And there's a lot of people that want to lay claim to him. And so the first thing we see in this is that we cannot co-opt Jesus for selfish purposes. And this is hard. I know that that seems like an easy statement, right? I mean, that's like something that we're like, well, duh, you know. And yet it happens over and over and over. That we want to be those that are like, I know Jesus, and I'll just get him, you know, and and, and we just claim that, and we want to just kind of blanket apply it to something and, and think that it's enough. And that's what this man does. Listen again, someone in the crowd, and I think Luke says that on purpose. Like, this is just kind of a nameless guy. We don't even know who it is. But he just yells out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this isn't a guy searching for wisdom. This isn't somebody searching for meaning in life. This isn't somebody who's trying to develop their faith. He genuinely just wants what he wants. And he's trying to tell Jesus, hey, make this happen for me. Why? Because he recognizes Jesus has authority. And he wants to appeal to an authority for what he feels entitled to have. And that's where we get in trouble. Because Jesus immediately responds. says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Interesting. I remember the first time I read this as a teenager, I'm like, well, you're Jesus. Obviously, you're a judge and arbitrator. Like, you, you have the final say. But I didn't understand, you know, what was going on at the time is that Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to divert from my mission to handle a petty squabble over who's greedier or less greedy. This has nothing to do with what he's teaching or what he's doing. And so 
we see a person in this passage trying to use Jesus and by extension God to achieve what, what he wants, and that's it. And this is common behavior. It isn't rare. And there are two ways that people do this in our world today. Okay? The first is when there is a sudden need. And a person has ignored God. They've been unfaithful. They're, they're just living their life. And typically then they reap what they have sown. And they suddenly find a faith in God, right? And the prayer typically goes something like this. God, if you'll get me out of this, I promise, fill in the blank. Either I promise to go to church, I promise to never or whatever. But that prayer is what? It's trying to co-opt God's power to get out of consequences. It's not one born of faith. It's not one born of repentance. And it is not one born of obedience to God. It is a prayer of trying to co-opt God's power to appeal to God's power to solve our latest crisis. And the hard thing is, is we've all done this in some way at some point in life. And then God doesn't answer it, and we've got to wrestle with that. And, you know, do, are we honest about it on the other side of, hey, uh, well, of course he didn't answer that because, you know, this was my fault. I did this. Or, you know, we... we tuck it away and hide it, and see, God doesn't answer me. Either way, none of that is born of faith. And their pleading, however sincere in that moment, is often not answered because God is not going to be co-opted for selfish reasons. He, he's just not. And in fact, he tells us this in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs, the, the book of wisdom, for wisdom in life, for here's how you can live life and and you know, kind of see behind the curtain a little bit and, and learn how to make these decisions that please God and also work out in life. And in Proverbs 1, 23 through 28, it says, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. Now, there is the common practice of God. If you turn, I will pour my spirit out. It, God will forgive. He will always forgive. But our turning has to be genuine. That's called repentance. And when God convicts us and we are willing to listen to that conviction, what does he say? He says, I'll pour my spirit out. I will forgive you. I will be present with you. He says, I will make my words known to you. God wants us to be with him. And that is the promise. But, listen to what he says, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. And we don't hear that side of God a whole lot, do we? That there is a point where God says, look, you don't want to listen to me? Cool. I'll let you reap what you've sown, and when the reaping happens and you start calling out to me, I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to not just ignore you. It says what? I will laugh at your calamity. And we really don't think of God in those terms, do we? Of him going, ha ha, I got what you deserved. But that's what he says he's going to do here. Now, when does he do this? After we've repeatedly ignored him. 
when he said, turn to me, 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 turn to me. And we just keep ignoring and keep ignoring and keep ignoring. And then he finally says, okay, cool. Do your thing. And then when it goes south, and it always goes south, there's no way it can't go south. He says, I will laugh. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. You see, this is why today is the day of salvation. This is why we cannot put off when God moves, when God calls, when God convicts, we have to respond. Because we don't know how many times, if we're going to be honest, we don't know how many times in the past it's possible that God has told us to repent and we just didn't even hear it. And so this one moment where you're really hearing it, we don't know if it's the first or the 50th time that we've heard this. And what if it is that last time before God says, okay, you know what? Reap what you've sown. We don't know. And so today is the day of salvation. We have to turn when he calls. Now, there's a second way people try to co-op God uh, for personal gain, and that is for literal personal gain, for profit. Not just to get out of their latest crisis, but to make a buck to get some influence, to get some power for themselves. And that's what this man is trying to do in this passage. Hey, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. What is his goal? It's obvious. I want the money. Now, in that culture, obviously the firstborn son was typically, you know, he got the inheritance and it was kind of up to him to whether or not he would split it up and dole it out to the rest of them. And whatever this is going on in this passage, obviously this younger, this younger person is not getting what he thinks he's owed. And he's turning to Jesus saying, hey, you need, you know, can you fix this for me? And Jesus is like, no, not my, not my deal. And you know, a thought happened, and, and this, is, this is pure speculation, and again, it was just a parable. What if this was the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son? Coming to, you know, hey, tell him to split the inheritance. Brody, you, you wasted yours. It's gone. Now, again, that's a pure speculation, but it sure changes the tenor of things, Right? We all want to, you know, see this guy as, well, maybe he's a victim. Maybe that older brother is just hoarding it all. Maybe he's not. Maybe this guy already spent his. Maybe he's been a thorn in the flesh the entire family the whole time, and they're like, you know what? No, I'm not giving you anything. You've done nothing but cause grief. And that's what Jesus is just like, nope, I'm not getting into this. Because there are, there, there are these unstable people who cause division, and as Paul says, they are people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That if I just do these things, then God will make me rich. That God will make me powerful. That God will, will increase me. What did Jesus tell us? He says, you've got to deny yourself. 
And so right here, we already see a conflict of, of the direction Jesus is leading and what this man is asking Jesus to do. And Jesus immediately shuts it down. And, and he is. This, this is one of those times this man is completely and fully rejected by Jesus in a moment. He's not having any of it. He tells him, nope. Who, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? I'm not here to judge a, a you know, contest a will for somebody. Not his mission. Now, there's another example in Scripture of people who tried to co-opt God in the name of Jesus for personal gain. And these are the seven sons of, of Siva in Acts 19, 14 through 16. It says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, now, that right there, we got to pause. What is an itinerant Jewish exorcist in the first century? Itinerant means that you book them ahead of time. They travel town to town making money trying to cast out demons. Because obviously we read through the Gospels, demonic possession and presence was a real problem in first century Israel, okay, in, in that area. And so these people saw a lot of money, and they were able to make money doing this. And this is about money. You didn't have the money, they don't show up to come cast the demon out, which is how you know this is not from God. Not once did Jesus ever request money before doing a good work for somebody. And so... He says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of, Je of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Why? Because they saw the disciples doing it, and they're like, hey, there's power here, and we could really up our business if we start using the name of Jesus because we've come to recognize demons don't like Jesus. And so they try to co-opt it for their own purposes, and it says they were saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Could they show any more that they have no faith in Jesus? Like they're, they're third removed from it, you know. It's not, not in Jesus' name and not the, the Jesus that I follow or even, you know, what Paul taught me directly. What if they've heard about Paul talking about Jesus and they're trying to latch on to it? And so they talk about this Jesus whom Paul preaches. They know nothing about it. And yet they're willing to try to co-opt it for their own purposes. And it says, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Let that sink in for a second. A demon says, Jesus I know. They're not afraid of the name Jesus. They just said his name. This isn't magic. It's not just say a word and suddenly they're, they're afraid. Like, oh, I know who Jesus is. And I even recognize Paul's name, which means Paul was literally shaking, you know, the foundations of hell here. Like, they, they, the, the, the dark spiritual forces were becoming familiar with Paul's name because of the work he was doing. But who are you? You know what that says? I'm not intimidated at all. You, you bring nothing right here that is going to stir me, that's going to move me, that worries me. 
And it says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They tried to co-opt the name of Jesus for personal profit. What did it do? It ended up hurting. Because we cannot co-opt God for personal things. All we are doing in that is exactly what they were doing right here. Is, is trying to tell, trying to manipulate God into doing what we want, trying to get the benefit of God without faith and obedience to God. And when we start doing that, we open ourselves up for spiritual attacks in which we will be wounded. We will lose. We, we are opening up, we are dealing with powers that are beyond us, and we are actually, in a sense, conjuring spirits in doing this. We're invoking the name of God without faith in God. Then that means we're open to spiritual things and the demons know that. And they're like, oh, go get them. And in both cases, those who see Jesus as the answer to their latest self-made emergency or their own, you know, ambitious goals... Those who see Jesus as a means of profit find that it doesn't work out for them. And not only does it not work out, it, it comes back on them very quickly. We have to make sure that our heart is in serving God, not getting from God. Now, his promises are amazing. And he tells us, what did he, we just read in Proverbs, turn to me, return I will pour my spirit out on you. And when the spirit's there, the fruit of the spirit is present. Love, joy, peace, patience. It, it, that is the reality of the presence of God. But we cannot chase the fruit alone. We can't chase the benefit alone. God himself must be the treasure. And if we aren't chasing God, and we're chasing the benefit of God, it's not going to work out for us. And we're going to do more harm to ourselves and to others than we do good. It, every time. Every time. And, and so, I want you to listen. Again, it says where, the, the scripture tells us, where your treasure is, there will your heart will be. Okay? Where, where we focus and what we really want in life, that's what our heart's going to lead us toward. And if it's leading us toward the benefits of God and not God himself, you know what? That is a heart that's focused on self. That's a heart that's focused on the now and only the now. I'm not saying we're not interested in the now. The now matters. You know why? Because it's all we got. We can't live in yesterday and tomorrow's not here yet. But we have to chase God in the now and not the benefits of it. And so Jesus warns them. He tells this man, man, who made me an arbitrator, a judge over you? I mean, he just immediately rejects it. And then he turns to the people and he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, this leads us to ask a question. Of what does life consist if it does not consist in the abundance of possessions, what is it that we can say, okay, that's not it, this is it? What does life consist of? What's it about? 
What should we be pursuing? What should we be desiring? What is it, and ask yourself this, what is it that I want? Genuinely, what is it that I want? The man in this story wanted his cut of the inheritance. He thought he was entitled to it. So much so, he fought through a huge, massive crowd to get to Jesus just to say, teacher, tell him to split the money with me. You know, you almost wonder how long this guy walked. Where did he come from? I mean, we, we get no backstory on this, but it kind of fascinates me because some real effort went into this. You know, it's not like he just ran into Jesus. It's like, hey, maybe you could solve this for me. This is intentional. He is shouting over a massive crowd that's there. He is passionate about it. And his passion was misplaced. He's seeking the wrong things. And so what is it that we should be pursuing? Well, God has given us an answer to this in creation itself. Because if he's warning us, it's not in the abundance of possessions. And yet work and striving are a part of life that God has created and wants it to be a part of life. What is it that we should be doing? Well, in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, what is God telling us right here? Was God tired? Was creating the world hard? No, he says, even this entire existence is going to be a back and forth between work and rest. It's a daily thing. We sleep, we get up, we go. But then it's also to be a weekly thing. Work, rest. Work, rest. Work, rest. Now, does work outweigh rest? Yes, six to one. And we're going to get into what that means. And yet, to believe that life is found in possessions is to believe life is found in productivity alone. That the more that I have, the more I work, the more that I gain, now I'm the winner. Now I'm, I'm happy. Now I'm good. This stuff will fulfill me. And you know what? It doesn't. It, it doesn't. And, and so... What happens here is this leads to focusing, over-focusing on productivity, on becoming a workaholic. Now, if we believe that life is found in rest alone, what does that lead? That leads to laziness. That leads to slothfulness. And what has God told us? He says there's a balance. And it is hardwired into creation to remind us of the things that really matter. Because does your work matter? Absolutely. It matters. You need to work to the glory of God. You need to be productive to the glory of God for six days out of seven. But on that seventh, you've got to drop that and focus somewhere else. And it's got to be an intentional focus. Can you rest to the glory of God? You ever thought of that? Resting to the glory of God. God expects it. 
In fact, what does he say? He tells us in the Ten Commandments, and he repeated it in the law. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. It says in Exodus 34, 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And how he says this, in plowing time and in harvest time, you shall rest. Got any farmers in here? How easy is it to rest during harvest? That's hard, isn't it? You don't want it. You've got to get this done, right? We've got to get it done. We've got to work. It's time to go. And I get it. Harvest, the, the clock is ticking. Because if we don't get this done, we, we could lose out. And what does he say? He says, even when you're working the hardest, rest. Make time to rest. And you know why? Because it feeds faith. It refuels the spirit. It, it, You've got to rest the body. I mean, everything. It is a shift in priorities for one day that we have to do intentionally. And those priorities get out of whack. And you see it in things like this man who comes to Jesus and says, tell him to give me the inheritance. You see, he has over-focused him somewhere in his life and has not focused on connection with God and with people because he's probably sacrificed his relationship with his, his older brother by this point. If he's willing to go to this amount of trouble to come and demand that Jesus come back and tell this guy to split it, can you imagine the conversations that have probably happened at home? He has sacrificed the things that matter for the things that don't. And he's convinced of it. And so what are we to do on that rest day? Well, it tells us in, in creation, it is holy unto the Lord. Focus on a good part of life that is other and different than your regular life. That is other and different. And that's part of, look, you're here on Sunday. We don't do this any other day of the week, right? This is other and different. This is a time set apart for the Lord to worship, to, to remind ourselves of him. And so this is a part of it. But we are to literally shift gears one day a week into something completely different than what we've done before. And I think this is something in, in our American culture that we've, we've kind of lost. And look, I'll even admit, I'd, I could probably do a better job of shifting gears and actually making a point of Sabbath rest as an act of obedience and worship to God. Totally shifting mindset, shifting gears, and it is. Can you rest to the, world, to, to the glory of God? You see, it's, it's, it's hard for us today, and especially, look, I'm not picking on you, but you type A's perfectionists that it's all about getting the job done all the time. You're wonderful six days a week. But if you carry it into that seventh, you're telling God, I know better than you. Nope, nope, this is too much. Now, notice, he said, in plowing time and harvest time, there are times in life it's going to be busy. He says, you still got to make time for this. You still got to be willing to, to set it down. And you know what I've heard from people? Is how amazingly productive they can become those other six days when they are willing to give to God what's his on that one. 
Because it's the same thing with tithing. When we tithe to God, it's amazing how much better we become with our money, with what's left. When we give to God's what's his, we use what's left better. We're more responsible with it. We, we steward it better. We got to do the same thing with our schedule. When we give God his one day, we'll steward the other six better. Especially during the busiest time. Because a true Sabbath rest changes our perspective on life. It really does. It reminds us that there's more to life than work and productivity. And we engage that other side of it intentionally through that rest. It shows us the value God has placed on our well-being. He says, look, you're not just a productivity machine. You're a person created in my image and I want you to rest one day and recover and connect and connect with him and connect with each other and, and experience some of the joy of your life that you can get so busy you forget about in the other times. And I love that God hardwired this into creation. That's why he rested. It wasn't because he was tired. He's setting the example for us. He, he's done. And, and he says, look, this is how I want creation to work is that one day out of seven is different than the others. Intentionally different from the others. And so it isn't either or. It is always both and. Work and rest, both done to the glory of God. And in this story, we likely see this man sacrificing his relationship with family, his relationship with God, because his focus is so set on material gain that he has blinded himself to the rest of life. And so what is it that we are to do? We, we do, we need to become rich in faith. And by rich in faith, I mean that, that obedience to God and looking at how he wants us to live, how he has ordered things, and, and accepting that as this is the way life works. This is what will bring life, trusting his ways and not allowing this world to define everything for us. See, at no point does God ever tell us, yeah, you're getting out of work. You can even read Revelation and it even appears in the new heaven and new earth. Guess what? We have work to do. It's, it's interesting and I'm not going to get into all of what it is, but there is this idea of those who, who are in the kingdom then, it says that the kings of the earth will bling their glory in and out. And he's talking about the church. And there, there's something going on there that even in the new heaven and new earth, we're going to have jobs to do. Now, it's going to be to the glory of God. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be no death. So, I mean, it's going to be very different. But the work is never going to go away. God wanted us to work even before sin entered the world. And he wanted us to follow this pattern before sin ever entered the world. So this is hardwired into us. And, and so after he tells them, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, he then goes straight into a parable to teach everybody, like, this is why you've got to get this right. And, and so starting in verse 16, he says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. If you want a good modern day translation of that understanding, 
There's a guy who was so rich that he had so much money he didn't know where to store it. And so his bank was full, so he thought, I'll build a new bank. Think of it like that. He says, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He's saying, I've won. I've won. I've won the lottery. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, this is a powerful parable because he just shows the limit of wealth and how quickly life can and will change. In which wealth, money, possessions are going to be of no use for what's coming. No use at all. And it's not that this man is rich that's the problem. Okay, it's not. This parable is directed straight at those who only see one side of life. Jesus rejects the man's plea very quickly and refuses to get involved and then uses this parable to tell the world why. And so there are a few things we can learn from this. One, Jesus rejects the man's request because it has nothing to do with his mission and purpose in life. We've we got to remember that. What did Jesus come to do? Seek and save the lost. Settling a pebby, petty squabble over who's going to have more money, not leading to anybody's salvation, not leading to any truth being there, and so Jesus refuses to be distracted. Taking sides in a petty feud over materialistic gain isn't going to help. So he's not interested. And you know what? He still isn't interested. If we're trying to force God to you know, take our side on something stupid... He's not going to be interested. Two, the second thing we need to learn from this, do not interpret material success as a sign of God's approval. Man, our country, our world wants to do that right now. Oh, God's really blessing you. Yeah, I must be doing something right. You might be doing everything wrong. I, and I'm serious. There, Material wealth does not mean, it, it, and it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't mean you're doing stuff wrong, and it doesn't mean you're doing stuff right. It just is. It might just mean you're good at business. It might mean you were lucky. I, I, we don't know. I mean, there's just, it, it doesn't tell us if God is on our side. The world is a broken place. And often, those who are the farthest for God see the most worldly success. We, we just see that. And, and in this parable, the man thinks he can now live at ease because of his success when in reality, he has neglected the most important thing in his life, his relationship with God. And just at the moment that he thinks he can eat, drink, and be merry, live the good life, retire, and just enjoy everything, God says, and it's time to come home. We're done. You're done. And guess what? A whole lot of people are going to benefit from all the grain that you have now. But it won't be you. He has no relationship with God, no saving faith, and all his wealth will not help him when he faces judgment. Do not interpret material success as God's stamp of approval 
on your life. Don't look at other people's material success and think, God, why do you love them more than me? Don't do that. God's approval in our life comes strictly through faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. We are forgiven because of the price he paid for us. We are accepted because of his righteousness imputed to us, given to us, and the grace that God has shown us. And it is not dependent on your status in life. It is not dependent on your success in business. It is not dependent uh, upon any accomplishment that you can make on your own. And the third thing is material success is not inherently bad. If God, if it is a blessing in your life because you do have a relationship with God and, and things start to work, understand God is blessing you so you can be a blessing. And if God has blessed you and you are being a blessing, there's no problem with enjoying the blessing yourself so long as it doesn't define you. Don't feel guilty if you're walking with God and, and, and material success finds its way to you and you've worked hard for it and it's, and it's worked out. You don't have to feel bad about that. You just make sure you steward it well to the kingdom of God. And so that's what he says. He, he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And the next part is important and is not rich towards God. You see, that's that balance in life that we're talking about. If we're rich towards God, then yeah, maybe we have tremendous success six days a week, but we also have success one day a week. And we have tremendous success in worshiping and connecting and learning about faith and grace and love and fellowship and the things of God and the family of God, and we're successful there and we're successful the other six days of the week. Great. But he says, be rich towards God. Because there are several people in Scripture who used their wealth as a tool for God's kingdom. There are many. Okay, think about the, the woman who breaks the expensive glass, the, the jar of perfume on, on Jesus' feet. You know how expensive that stuff was? It was like two years' salary. Guess what? She was wealthy. <laughs> she didn't accidentally come across this bottle of nard is what scripture says that cost two years salary she didn't just accidentally come across it and say hey I think I'll go break it here she had the money and she spent it so that she could worship Jesus with it she used her wealth to worship God and you know what we're still talking about her today you know who else we talk about the old woman who put in two mites you know why? Because they both used their wealth to honor God. One gave very little, one gave two years' salary. Guess what? They both gave sacrificially, and God noticed both. This isn't to demonize wealth. It's just saying, don't let wealth own you. Don't let possessions possess you. Everything in our life is God's. Amen? I remember in my own life reading A.W. Tozer. He's not everybody's flavor, and, and I can understand why sometimes, but he did have in a book called The, the Pursuit of God, 
But he says we have to come to a point where everything in our life belongs to him. Give up the idea of ownership of anything in your life. You own nothing. It's all God's. And I remember reading that again as a teenager thinking, that's pretty intense. But it made sense to me. It's all his. I'm just a steward. And whatever he chooses to bless me to steward, I want to steward well. I want to be faithful with it. And if he gives me things to enjoy, guess what? I want to enjoy it to the kingdom of God, to the glory of God. That's okay. But you can't allow anything to own And that's why Jesus rejected this man out of hand when he showed up. Because these possessions owned him, even when he didn't own them. He's fighting for stuff that's not even his. Legally, it's not his. If he were a steward and, and he trusts God in this, he'd just be like, well, not mine anyway. And you know what? If he's greedy, if the older brother really is greedy, he would be like, well, God will deal with him. God will deal with him. I got a life to live. And God's going to take care of it. And I'm just going to trust him and keep working and go on. But, you know, he didn't think that way because he obviously made the trip to come to Jesus to say, Jesus, get me my stuff. And so the challenge today is let's make sure, let's ask ourselves, what is our treasure? What is it that we are genuinely seeking and desirous of? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. And God, we thank you for the opportunity. And God, I pray that you help us to learn. God, that we would really do the, the work of looking in our hearts and seeing what it is that we desire. And where we don't desire the things that, that please you, God, I pray you help us to, to let go of that where heart or attitude seem to, to need a, not seem, where they need adjustment, God. We pray that you convict us and lead us to the place where our lives reflect your grace and your glory. God, if we've not put our trust in, in Jesus as Savior, God, lead us to that place of saving faith that we would seek to honor you with life and, and lay it all down and accept, Lord Jesus, as Savior. God, use us to share your love with others. Use us in your kingdom. Help us to spread grace and love and truth and to do it in such a way that it honors you. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.